Channel 33 is brought to you, as always, by SeatGeek. They're our presenting sponsor and our favorite way to buy and sell tickets to sporting events, concerts, and whatever else you want to go to. With the SeatGeek mobile app, you can quickly and easily buy tickets with just two taps and have your tickets delivered straight to your phone to enter the event. And if you can't make the event, something comes up, SeatGeek now lets you transfer tickets to your friends or post tickets for sale all from your phone. As a special offer for Channel 33 listeners, SeatGeek is offering $20 back off your first purchase with the promo code BSPN. To get $20 back on your first SeatGeek purchase, download the SeatGeek app today and enter promo code BSPN. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch on the Channel 33 podcast feed. I am Chris Ryan and I am an editor for TheRinger.com. And with me on the other line, he really thought he was dating Brie Larson for a second. It's Andy Greenwald! Yo, that... California! It's a little little close to home. That's a little (laughs) close to home right there. I told you I was a little tender today. Am I right? You're just touching the soft places. I had to stay up so late watching that show last night and then and see like the handsomer, younger, more musically inclined version <laughs> of me just be like, yeah, that's that's wifey up there. Who says there aren't second acts in that's, American life? <laughs> that's t- you know what? If you're that dude, it's all first act. It's all first act. <laughs> Because like what's what's worst case scenario for him, right? Like wor- worst case scenario for him is American Eagle Outfitters is like, hey, can you stand here and wear this bomber jacket for a ten thousand dollars today? Like that's the worst case for. Does that he dude. still cake up off of OC streaming money? Yeah, I think he, I think he gluten free cakes it. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. like sort of uh, doesn't clump up. Doesn't like really a, like cling to your insides. Like a, a nice nut butter. Uh, Andy, welcome Does to the watch. Does anyone know what we're talking about? <laughs> no. I don't. I don't think they do. Sorry, my bad. Welcome to the watch. You can subscribe to us on the Channel Thirty Three <laughs> hey. podcast feed on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I am Chris Ryan. This is Andy Greenwald. We are talking about Oscars winners and losers, and we have a very fun segment for the second half of the show today. Where we're gonna so fun. do a little uh, vinyl doctoring, where we are going to suggest some alternative settings and time periods that vinyl, a, a show like vinyl, could have taken place in. So that's 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 a fun thing. But dude, we're going to start with the Oscars from last night. Uh, very long show. I watched all of it, as is my uh, want, and then I promptly gathered myself and went and saw the legendary post-hardcore band Drive Like Jehu play their first show in Los Angeles in like 10 years, and they pushed my wig back, man. They were so great. If anybody hasn't heard uh, either of their two albums, self-titled album and Yank Crime, Yank Crime is on Spotify. Oh my God, this band is so good. And if you get a chance to see them, I think they play like 10, 5, 10 shows a year in sort of major metropolitan areas. I mean, they've been playing a lot in California, I think. But holy shit, they are good at playing music. Can I ask you something? How many members of the extended Fury Road crew were in attendance. <laughs> <laughs> because some of those dudes looked like they liked to party. They and looked I like they like went full the finestra. Governor's ball was not what the they're sh- about. Yeah, let's talk about the Oscars a little bit. Um uh let's break this up into winners and losers. We already mentioned Alex Greenwald, but I have written down here Mad Max Finestra <laughs> <Can> we, heads. <laughs> I, I want to talk about that. Can we can we just talk? Sometimes I feel like that's sliding doors. That really was best case scenario me. Now, as far as I know, I'm not related to him, just like I'm not related to, uh, you know, uh, international espionage provocateur Glenn Greenwald. But uh, <laughs> what if you I were? wish we all were. I, what if you guys I were brothers? We were. That would be amazing. Glenn, Andy and Alex. Uh, 
That's like a Wes Anderson movie Bros. right there. <laughs> it it oh god, that would be terrific. I love it mainly the because Royal Greenwalds. Because because Queen Bree would make an appearance. That's right. Um, it was nice to hear the Greenwald name get a little shine from that stage. Yeah, That's I know. We, say. It's, um, it's always good to. I, but I, I'm actually going to take that point, and we'll, and we'll I'll make a larger point that we can can help us get into this because I think obviously Brie Larson was a big winner. She literally won her category, but I would actually put her in a little bit of a loser category as well. If if you'll bear with me on this, you've already you just you're, you're blowing my mind already. First of all, can I just ask you really Oscars, quickly? Have you seen Room? Yeah. Oh God, no! <laughs> I, I, I've seen maybe twos of the movies we're going to be talking about. Should I admit that up front? I, I went on, I went on the Kornheiser show this morning, and I was like really giving some opinions about the state of cinema. And luckily, they never asked me if I'd seen any of the movies, so I feel I feel good about that. Um, I saw everything except so, for Bridge of Spies and Danish Girl, and Bridge of Spies to my tremendous shame that I have not seen that. Yeah, I feel like I want to see that one. Yeah. Um, Here's what I want to say about it. Every year we talk about award shows and we talk about the Oscars, and every year people in charge of producing them, they worry about the host, they worry about the montages, the uh, in-memoriam reel, how they're going to juice this thing up, how they're going to make it entertaining, how they're going to make it stand out from the pack. The truth is, these things are what they are, and the only thing that changes year to year are the speeches and who wins the awards. Like That's what makes or breaks an Oscars. Uh, actually, let me rephrase that. What breaks the Oscars is having Rob Lowe duet with Snow White. But what makes any Oscars is always going to be something that hasn't been planned and is uncontrollable. And the biggest flaw of this year was I don't think anyone was particularly passionate about the movies in play or the likely winners. And when that happens, with the exception of DiCaprio. Now, I don't really care what DiCaprio says because he wasn't saying it through it, you know, a Alice in Wonderland caterpillar style haze of vape smoke. So because he didn't do that, it wasn't as interesting. But people like seeing people that they've invested in or grown up with have their moment and what they do with that spotlight when they get it. No best picture winner, pun intended. Right. The problem with this was as much as I love Brie Larson, not as much as my cousin Alex, but a lot of people. Like, more than a lot of people. Like, I've been a big fan of her in almost all of the movies she's in. I think she's a tremendous actor, and I'm really happy for her. But I wasn't that interested in what she was going to say, A. Same with Alicia Vikander. Like, I think she's great. She's beautiful. You, but it's not like you she moves the needle You shut your damn mouth when you say. talk about Alicia Vikander. <laughs> the, th- the, 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 the stalking horse problem with this, though, it's not just that they didn't have that much to say because they're just young, talented people at the beginning of their career. There's not, like, an arc for them to be explaining to us or for us to be, you know, viscerally experiencing. The problem is this whole thing is gamed out so much now. Brie Larson has won at least a dozen awards in the last two months. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. She speeched yeah. out, dude. She speeched out. There's two There's two paths to this conversation. There's how to fix the Oscars in general and how to fix last night um, or what we, what we sort of liked and didn't like about last night. But I completely agree with you. By the time you get through the PGAs and the DGAs and the SAGs and the Globes and the People's Choice Awards and the Spirit Awards and every other thing, the New York Film Critics Circle, the Critics' Choice, whatever else – even if it's Rylance Ruffalo or Stallone, if it's Leo or not, you know, nobody else, but if everybody who is going to get a chance to go up on that stage has done the deal already. And I remember the, the, the tipping point for this for me, I guess, to the extent that I care about it, was when uh, McConaughey had to do his Dallas Buyers Club speech like nine times. Yes. And that is a Great very point. charismatic dude. You know what I mean? Like I would listen to Matthew McConaughey call a Brewers game if I could – 
But after he gives right. the same speech, seriously, That's why the hell has that not happened? But after he gives the same speech six times, you're just like, either I need to look at my choices and think about what I'm doing with my Sunday nights, or like he just you just got to go up there and be like, I saved some stuff for the Oscars. You know what I mean? And. and- and to be fair, um, our colleague <laughs> now, and friend at that Amanda point, you Dobbins might be like, was... "Guess what? I killed a guy once." <laughs> like, you know, like, and I'm just—I have amazing. to get it off my chest. <laughs> Can I say that you seem to be pitching alternate seasons of Eastbound and Down, all of which I would be into? <laughs> like the, the Brewers game, the Secret Murder, the confession in front of Louis Gossett Jr. I love all of it. Matthew McConaughey would have done us all a big favor if he had done his Eastbound and Down character when he won his Oscar. Uh. Everyone just... should always be doing their eastbound and down character, especially Adam Scott. But let me say, a <laughs> yeah. friend and colleague Amanda Dobbins, I was listening to her on uh, Jam Session podcast, shouts to Channel 33. Um, and, you know, I think she was making the point, uh, or maybe she didn't even make it herself. I, maybe this was on Bill's podcast. It's just all podcast incest here in my brain, my, my foggy brain. But the point was, best presumptive Brett best actor or actress winners have a lot to potentially lose particularly if it's their introduction on a national stage and the comp was Hathaway who had a lot of goodwill and then seemed a little little too cozy up there and maybe turned some people off and to that end both Brie Larson and Queen Vikander were delightful you know they were very polished they were very appreciative and they were very brief so in terms of like curating career management that's great but honestly what we all want is more of the Mad Max Fury Road costume designer just letting the leather jacket out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just like, yeah. just unleash it. That, um, that makes it more fun. Um, you take the next one. Well, yeah. I mean, I think what, what could we say about the... So, uh, here's a loser. Was uh, anyone who was unfamiliar with Ali G's work before last night? Because <laughs> that oh, must have weird been choice, man. a really, really confusing moment for you. Like... That is not a character that I would say is in the lexicon right now. I mean, like, it is for us. You know, we, we remember those things. But I got to say, like, sure. that, was a, that was a choice. And shout out to whoever is the, the Brothers Grimsby uh, marketing team. I wonder if they're like, yeah, a little bit less Ali G and a little bit more like the guy that was supposed to be in a movie this summer. Um, Olivia Wilde, just she really had the wheel grip tight there up there. I feel for her. Um Get- I can't can, tell can, can she... we just like have one Sunday? Can we have one Sunday night when Olivia Wilde is not just forced to like have lockjaw next to a giant dude overdoing something? You know what I mean? Like, let Olivia live. Yeah, like, let just her be let wild. Her be. Let. I, I felt so bad. I mean, what at what point did they tell her? Oh, you're presenting with Sasha Baron Cohen, and she's like, Ah, come on, guys. Like, I got a kid. Like, it's Sunday night, my TV show's on. I don't have to do this. And then he's like. Just Gilda Lily, he's going to be doing it in a character that hasn't really been noteworthy in 12 years. Like, what, what, is the, what is the upside of this for her, other than, I guess, looking dynamite on the Oscars? I would love to know how um, much they knew about that beforehand. Like, you know, did she know, did, were they like, you're going to be presenting with Sasha Baron Cohen, and she was like, that's great, I, 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 I love Borat? Or did they say, <laughs> you're going to be presenting with Ali G, and she was like, I, I love Ali G respect or was she like you're going to be presenting with ali g and she's like did he just quit one direction and yeah, they're right. like great go with a doll right you're killing it um andy if i'm going to remember really anything from this and there are other winners and losers we're going to talk about here but the thing that will stick with me is uh the closing moments of the show which had some of the stuff that i really like about award shows which is um famous people acting normally like michael keaton 
eating a Girl Scout cookie on stage when he won Best Picture with uh, Spotlight. But then in the last few seconds, um, they chose to use the outro music to be uh, Fight the Power, the Public Enemy song that was um, obviously really prominently used to do the right thing and is a uh, is an anthem of sorts uh, for the last over the last 30 years of rebellion and um, social justice. And I thought it was complete bullshit for them to do that. I think that you can't totally. play fight the power when you are the power. And there was a lot of self-flagellation going on last night between Chris Rock's um, hosting and also just a lot of, like, I think, people basically being uncomfortable with what they were participating in, but at the same time wanting to be active participants in it. And I think you can, you can break that down in a bunch of different ways. But I basically reject the idea of... Um, a uh, like this idea that the Oscars somehow didn't have any control over what they were broadcasting, and I know that it's not a homogenous body, and that there are voters, and then there's an executive board, and then there are. Oh. It's a little homogenous. Well, it is a little homogenous, but I'm sure that the president of the Academy was genuine in her comments. I'm just saying that, like, yes, she was. The way that they almost tried to then capture the zeitgeist of people being against what the Oscars stood for and flip it into a selling point for the Oscars itself seemed really, right. really disingenuous to me. And I, I kind of... Like, just don't piss on me and tell me it's raining is basically what I my, my attitude about it was. And I just thought that that I, was like a really bum note to go out on. I, to- I totally agree. And I, I'm glad you pointed out how strange it was, particularly given how loose and real feeling those last few seconds actually were. Yeah, it was a surprise thing. Surprise winner that I was very happy about. I love that movie. Um, you know, I, if we're doing winners and losers, I think Chris Rock was generally a winner. I thought that he was terrific, particularly in the beginning. Um, and, you know, what was really interesting about it was that, you know, we as fans of Chris Rock and as fans of, of comedy and his comedy in particular knew that the advantage of having Chris Rock is that he he, he doesn't give an F. Like, he doesn't care. He He's not there to win friends or influence people. He's there to do the funniest sharpest smartest bits that he can to you know to to get his point across and he was thrilled to grab the mic you know there are plenty of people particularly types of performers who were in that room who as soon as they find out what they're actually being asked to talk about would run as far away from the microphone as possible and he's the kind of guy who would run i think jennifer lawrence did do that i mean jennifer lawrence was conspicuously absent she showed up late didn't walk the red carpet uh it i think that that was like a conscious I can't I'm speculating but it seems like that would be a conscious decision for her not to have to answer questions for an hour before the show you know um, the thing is she wouldn't have had to because judging by a lot of those red carpet interviews only uh only get uh, people who were there attendees of color were even asked about the diversity issue um and white attendees were not by and large but um which is exactly the problem um you know, I really appreciated that Chris Rock was talking about the way racism works, not in a pure good evil 12 years a slave way, which is kind of the way a lot of people in this country still perceive it. And even people who are otherwise, you know, well-intentioned or, or liberal minded, but in the way that it works systemically and ever presently and constantly and particularly in institutions that fancy themselves as forward thinking, but in fact have just sort of been allowed to fester in their own um homogeneity for a very long time that comment that he made about you know um we love you you're just not a kappa uh was was pretty biting and i think was understood that that kind of cut through and people sort of understood it the strange dynamic there that was going on though is twofold one is 
you know, everyone walked into that room eagerly wearing a kick me sign. And partly because I think there were people who have, you know, well-intentioned and felt embarrassed about the fact that there were no nominees of color for the second straight year. But I also think other people were like, well, great, we'll get spanked and then we can move on to the parties, you know, and then not think about it past tonight, which is, I think, closing the circle to what you were saying. I think that's what that, that was the closing note in kind of a strange way. Um, You know, the, the, the bigger picture to me throughout the night was we can criticize and we should criticize the Academy for who they nominate and who's more specifically who they don't nominate. I mean, but they're not the ones greenlighting the films. Right. You know, they're responding in a way to what they are given and they're ignoring a ton, but it's an award show. Who cares about award show? I mean, obviously we do, but I would much rather give them a much fuller buffet to offer, you know, to choose from and then see how they deal with it. The problems are much deeper. You know, we heard people talk about that from the stage about or Spike Lee, you know, from a from last week's stage talking about how we got a black president before we got a black studio head. Um, and it still it just speaks to a much wider disconnect in an industry that is very, very smug about about its do good or tendencies, except when it's pointed in their face how they haven't been doing all that much good yeah i mean it's not all that much good for everyone i thought an interesting moment was the girl scout cookies thing not least because there was it was sweet i mean i like girl scout cookies as as, as the ringer Twitter did you do that attest. tweet that i, I did, took issue i did with? and i apologize for spelling it samosas instead of samoas it was like the, well, both are fine with me <laughs> it's just more like there's just thin mints and there's nothing else. That was an insane. That's just not true. You, I, we can get. Even, we can get. We can. I do feel that like I don't on, even know you anymore. On the Girl Scout cookies pod. Um, Fine, but I, I can't. It was obviously right a, an effort to try and sort of recapture some of the Ellen selfie kind of viral magic. I did think it was a little bit interesting that uh, it was juxtaposed with the fact that Ava DuVernay and Ryan Coogler were hosting a Justice for Flint benefit. Um, in which they raised over $100,000 and not a significant amount of money. And I'm sure many people in the audience are socially conscious and had d- donated for Flint Relief. But it, it was an odd thing to see happen. Like, in, in, yeah. in consider it would have been, I thought, one of the most... I think it would have been like a genuinely good moment if they had said, you know, like right now there's a Justice for Flint benefit being going on and, uh, you know, we really support what they're doing. And if we would like to put our money where our mouth is. So if everybody would pledge, you know what I mean? Like everybody in this audience would pledge, you know, to make a donation that would really help mm-hmm. everybody in a, in a obviously less fortunate part of this country right now. And the Girl Scout cookies thing was cool. But when it's like, oh, sixty five thousand dollars. Yes, the Girl Scouts of Los Angeles totally deserve that money, but it was just sort of like a strange tone deaf moment. Um, you know, not it wasn't a big deal. I'm not. It's not like I'm like really looking to litigate. No, I, th- this. I think you're right. If you want to talk about an academy being out of touch, sure, we can talk about representation, but it doesn't always have to be racial representation. It's just who's going to see these movies and what movies do they care about? And when the part when Chris Rock was listing the nominees and the woman was like, "You're making these up. Like those aren't really things," was so. So perfect, you know, yeah. because to me, you look at um, the 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 shockers that happened or the surprises that happened in the awards. And I'm not saying this on a judgment basis, because as we've said at the beginning, I haven't seen any of these movies. But OK, I've seen a couple of them. But if you think about it, there's no way Mad Max Fury Road was going to win Best Picture, even though it won ev- almost every other award it was nominated for. Right. But there is something that is inherently backwards looking traditional and snobby about the whole affair where even if people love the movie they're like well it's just a technical like it's a fun movie that can't be our that can't be our our um that that can't be at the front of the line that cannot win best picture right similarly 
I think that's why Stallone didn't win. You know, it, it, it went against the, the redemption arc story that we thought. But at a certain point, they were like, this guy was in The Expendables 3 last year. We can't have him on our stage. And, and even with The Revenant not winning, even though it won Best, uh, Best Director and Best Actor, I think the older people in the Academy got that screener and they're like, he gets eaten by a bear for three hours? Hard pass. Spotlight's a movie like the, like the movies I used to like. So I'll yeah. vote for that. Now, I would, I'm happy Spotlight won. But there is a lot of backwards thinking that is just baked into the entire thing. It is not just about who's getting nominated for the parts. Yeah, I mean, I think if anything, if you wanted to, my favorite, probably one of my favorite moments of last night were the montages they showed with the sound mixing and sound design uh, awards. Yeah, it was cool. They were so great. And even just like the brief moments during the cinematography, which is like, Chivo, we get it, man. Three back to back is not fair. You look at let Deacons eat. Roger Deacons needed to win for Sicario there, man. But... Everyone needed to win for Sicario. Uh, but they showed, you know, like, the, I would have loved, I would love it if, and this is not, like, something that's, like, going to ever get their ratings higher, but it was, like, a, the, the ratings were pretty far down this year. I wonder how much yeah. Walking Dead had to do with it. Who knows? But, you know, um, I would love to see the Academy Awards almost get dorkier about some of the craft stuff that they celebrate. Sure. Um, and show more montages. I love montages. What can I say? I'm a montage don't, head. Don't you think... Be the, This is what we said last year, too. It's like, your movies. People love you. Yeah. Like, relax, you know? Yeah. Show us things that people like about movies. Show us something interesting. Especially... And here's the problem that's going to happen today, is the takeaway from a lot of people is going to be like, oh, Chris Rock wasn't a good host because the ratings were down, and people didn't like controversy, so we're just going to shut up about stuff, or real-world political stuff. No, the ratings were down because no one liked these movies... And no one was excited to see Alicia Vikander other than us and Sean, right? <laughs> like, these people are not famous. They're not excited to see this happen. So I'm not saying that Star Wars Force Awakens should have been nominated in every category or whatever. But there, there is, as long as there is that disconnect between what's popular and what's, you know, what, and what's rewarded here, that's, that is inherently going to be an issue. So at least make a better show and own it. You know, I, I will give them some credit compared to the last few years when we would be having these conversations and we would just be laundry listing the ridiculous things that they had done, like at, you know, at 1055 in the East, a tribute to dancing in the movies. Yeah, right. Or whatever. And we're just like, what are you talking about? I mean, it, at the very least this year, we only had, by my count, there was the, um, uh, uh, the, the Star Wars droids thing, which I know I just mentioned we should have Star Wars. But, yo, I said this on Twitter too. Like, if you're going to have minions and Star Wars droids... Do it early in the show. Like, do yeah. it before Sarah Silverman is making jokes about Daniel Craig's ding-dong. You know what I mean? Like, think about who you want to watch. Not because I was, And people, I think people misread that tweet. People were like, oh, don't watch a show with your kids. I'm like, I'm not watching this with kids. <laughs> I wasn't offended. I'm just saying I was offended by being asked to watch Minions because I'm an adult at 11 p.m. Yeah. on the East Coast. Like, just front load it with fun stuff if that's of value to you. Don't put it at the end when we're already exhausted everybody knows that what you should be watching at 11 o'clock on the east coast is adam driver and jemima kirk masturbating on a couch together <laughs> uh, can't wait to just like a normal adult in america in 2016 <laughs> i can't wait to get to that um two more things to hit before we move off the oscars yeah uh what did you think about the the scroll of thank yous that they added uh, this year that was so cool winners, apparently wouldn't... um the kira rosler i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing her last name right was a dialogue coach or dialogue editor on Mad Max Fury Road. She used to play bass in Black Flag. 
But Rob Sheffield yeah. pointed that out. I thought that was amazing. I wonder if the, how many other hidden, cool like names are in those that scroll. It went by pretty fast. It didn't but, seem it's, people still got played off. Uh, you know, yeah, I which think, is crazy. The, the, the again, it's like this is why people watch the show. You know what I mean? Like, let them do thank yous. That's the only thing people care about. The only yeah. Easter egg I heard about was that Pete Doctor from Inside Out uh, at the bottom of the list said to you know, something his kids, and he said, "Okay, fine, we can get a dog now." Oh, and that went by nice. on the scroll. Which, which is cute. Um, the, uh, by the way, just Fury Road thing. The entire Revenant Oscar campaign, right, was like, boy, we were cold. Like, that was super hard. And then all these mild-mannered Australians crashed the stage, and they're like, when George asked me to move to Namibia for six months, <laughs> I was like, wait, what? They still interview Charlize about this, and she's, they're like, what a great experience that must have been, and like, do you want to make sequels? And she's just like, fuck no. Like, I am not doing that. I'm not going back to Africa to shoot an endless movie that has no plot when we're making it and that they're just making stuff up and throwing me off of trucks every day. She's literally calling up Seamless and, like, ordering raw bison liver just to have a normal experience, <laughs> just to calm down. She just crawled inside a horse just to get away um, from it all. Again, they, I just feel like they don't know what people actually like. And the thing, other thing that people actually like, although this sounds macabre to say it, is people like the Immemorium trip. Uh, montage you know it's it's a it's a nice thing like these are people who are part of our lives um and we want to see them have their moments we want to see who gets lines people take bets on who gets the hammer slot um why is dave grohl singing blackbird like wh why why wh who makes that call they usually just who's play the like out of africa's like... soundtrack over it i don't understand why they did a live a live bit for it this year they should well they've done that a few times recently i think jennifer hudson sang one year and it's just okay. like that's fine, but just just relax. Like we don't need more. That's the part we like. That's working fine. You know, fix fix the other bits. That's that's my that's my that's my pull quote. Fix the just, other things. The Andy bits. Greenwald from the Tony Kornheiser show. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be back where we <laughs> fix vinyl. Hey guys, I just want to tell you about our other sponsor. It's Viceland, the new TV channel from Vice. It starts today, February 29th. And I want to tell you about a particular show on there that you should really check out. It's called Fuck That's Delicious. If the idea of having Action Bronson host a food show sounds like a good thing, you're right. It is a good thing. It's You can watch past episodes of this show on Vice's website. There's one where uh, Action Bronson goes to Hawaii to find the perfect bowl of poke that is among my favorite pieces of filmed entertainment that I've ever seen in my life, including 2001 A Space Odyssey. Fuck That's Delicious is about food, rap, and travel. It premieres March 3rd at 10 p.m., and it features uh, action along with his friends, Mayhem Lauren and Big Body Bez. He shows us that life is to be enjoyed as much as possible. So check out Fuck That's Delicious Thursdays at 10. Viceland debuts today, February 29th. Check local listings. Okay, Andy, last night uh, was the third episode of HBO's Vinyl, which we have talked about the first two, and I think maybe we can talk about the third episode on the re-up later this week when we uh, talk about some other shows from this week. But I wanted to do something a little bit fun here. Now, I am a, probably a bigger fan. Um, I think it's an understatement to say I'm a bigger fan of the show than you are. But we both deeply care about what the show is about. Uh, and I am not just talking about um, Andrew Dice Clay as a radio uh, disc jockey. Um, we, we really are interested in um, the sort of intersection of like where music and a city and a time period can come together and all this different these different strains about society can come and run through that that sort of channel. Um, but we'll, you know, vinyl is set in 1973, I believe in New York city. 
And we were thinking um, it would be fun to kind of find other settings and other time time periods for vinyl, uh, whether it's in New York or not, but to keep it within the music industry and what, what an interesting uh kind of setting for the show would be so we came up with a couple each um and why don't you go first okay so the ones that i came up with have a theme and i wonder if it runs contra to your theme which would make for great radio it's not radio it's podcasting but you get my point which is i think even though i love it here i live here i'm fascinated by a lot of aspects of being here i'm out on new york city as a, as a home for this show <laughs> okay um you know, I, 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 one of the things that, that, I, that I bump up against with vinyl is that in 1973, it really feels like New York is the center of the rock and roll business mm -hmm. because this is a show that is fundamentally about business in the same way a lot of these great, you know, the same way that actually The Sopranos or Mad Men were shows about business and men at work. Um, obviously, the punk scene is percolating there and hip hop is coming, although slowly, if it's 1973. So what we're getting a lot of is these touring bands coming through there to, to sign contracts or, or play, play shows or, you know, crash buildings so i want to go outside of new york so my first one would take it back a few years and i would like to go to laurel canyon out out by you in la la land i would like to go to the post summer of love scene in laurel canyon where we have like you have Joni mitchell and you have the eagles and you have fleetwood mac coming and you have um i feel a jenny lewis you know, cameo crosby well i mean now you're talking my language here but there's something about like a very this is there wasn't Almost a lot of these people are very well off at this point or were soon to be. But what you have is a scene that is fundamentally about people collaborating in all senses of the term, right? Like making making music, uh, having sex, cheating on each other, doing drugs, basically retreating into themselves so that the music that came out of that period, some great some classics um, and some stuff that's still looked down on as basically soft rock. Yeah, because the point wasn't collision. The point was trying to figure out something else internal or just come down sure and i feel like there's something pretty interesting about that to me especially because it's just again it's it, we've seen the new york spotlight so we're taking it away so i'm going to continue to stay away from new york but but you can do the next one so there's a Bonnie, barney hoskins book uh h-o-s-k-y-n-s -S, uh if if you're interested called waiting for the sun which is a lot i think it has a lot uh, of stuff from that time period book. and that's a great book um yes. i am gonna stick with new york possibly because i'm out here and 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 i, I long I, I miss my east coast roots um this is sort of a weird one. It's not entirely different from like the sex, drugs, and rock and roll vibe of what we have now with vinyl, but I, get, I thought it would be a really good framing device to set a show over the uh, late May, early June, 17-night run of The Clash at Bond's nightclub in Times Square in New York. Nice. So this is 1981. The Clash released uh, their double album, Sandinista, the year before, which was this incredible, like, uh, postmodern culture clash of like punk rock uh british arena rock reggae rap and they you know they were basically like under the influence of american music at the time they come to new york city and they play this residency at a small nightclub they're a really really big band but they play a residency at a small nightclub in new york city called bonds for 17 nights and over the course of that time they had all these different opening acts from like the fall grandmaster flash Dead Kennedys, Bad Brains, Lee Perry. Um, I think they had like, uh, I can't remember if Mikey Dredd was like the in-house DJ for when people would arrive and leave. But you also have downtown in New York that time, the no wave scene and like the Sonic Youth plays like their first show in 81. 
I don't know whether you make it about like the road manager for the clash who is trying to keep Joe Strummer and Mick Jones from disappearing into the Hudson River. And but, you know, they were notoriously like listening to BLS and, you know, just really, really like in taking in the city in a way that was incredibly voracious, to say the least. And I think it would just be an incredible way to experience the music and the culture at that time would be to see it through the eyes of of a Joe Strummer like character, if not specifically him. And it would be a cool it would be a cool framing device because you would have like this limited amount. I don't even you could even do it as half hours where you just sort of do seventeen half hour episodes. I mean that's still quite a bit of time. But still I thought it would be a really cool way of looking at what was one of like the sort of high watermarks for New York City. You also have just like New York City in, in the early eighties is the most violent year territory. That's good stuff. I would definitely do that. You know, I don't know if you remember, but my my only semi joking pitch for the Mad Men spinoff was uh, um, uh, Sally Draper in Downtown Eighty One, basically. Oh God, where she's like she, she she has a job uptown at an art gallery, but then it keeps getting sent downtown. Yeah, I mean, and so there's this, this so, much, so much thing. of the art stuff was exploding at that time. It would have it would have been an, an incredible. Uh, thing to look at what's your second one so let me let me build on that because my second one is also set in 1981 oh but it is intentionally not set in new york city and where i would set it would be athens georgia in 1980 and 1981 college rock now here's why the birth of college rock you have rem forming in like crazy art school house parties played in an abandoned church you have the b52s doing the same thing dbs you have bands that didn't quite make it from this uh, no, but that's the same era, but not happening there. But okay. you have like Pylon and these other sort of more experimental bands. But what interests me most about this is when we think about cultural, underground cultural moments, the tendency is always to go right to the source, mm-hmm. to go to New York or to go to, to London or go to Paris or wherever the place may be. What about the satellite towns? What about the college towns where you felt like you had nothing else keeping you alive except this strange record that somehow made it to you yeah. or made it to the record store down the street and the clerk sold it to you and he gave you the flyer and then you went to this place? You know, in a way, when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about our own experience of following, um, you know, chasing down a rabbit hole and falling in love with underground music. But particularly in an era like the beginning of the you know, beginning of the Reagan era and in a deep south state like Georgia, where all of a sudden there's the... Um, you know, the college town and where a lot of the people who came who go to school there did not come from there. They came from maybe more uh, religious backgrounds or certainly more conservative backgrounds. So all of this happening at once with this fundamental thing that I think TV often misses when they're trying to capture artists or, or art movements happening, which is the uncertainty about being uncool or the deep assertion that even though maybe people like us will be doing a podcast, by the way, what's a podcast in 1980, <laughs> but talking about you 30, 40 years later, um, you you forget the fact that they didn't know that at the time. They didn't know what they were doing. They were literally disconnected from the places where the real stuff, quote unquote, was happening. Yeah. So as much as I was into the idea of doing it in Athens, all the talk that's been going on this week about the about Bob Mayer's replacements biography, Trouble Boys, which I cannot wait to read. I think we should probably do a, a double down book club or something about it. But made me think that a similar show set in Minneapolis in the early '80s would be great too, with the replacements forming and Husker Du, and again, like the satellite cities where there are plenty of smart people and artistically minded people just coming there because they can't quite make it to New York, Chicago, or I, Los Angeles. I don't think you can overstate how insane it is that REM became like the biggest band in the world. 
Well, and, and you said and before, that, not and, just and just like from what they began as and playing Radio Free Europe, where people were just like, I just can't understand what this guy is saying. Like, literally, cannot yeah. understand the lyrics to these songs. And and you know, when they used to say like, "You'll never make it, big kid," I can't understand your words. Like, that's about Michael Stipe. That's about REM. And the fact that that band went from such an idiosyncratic cult thing in a very small regional way, and then maybe on like a sort of sub you know, a, a alternative nation way and became with you two, probably the, the biggest alternative rock band until Nirvana is, is so crazy. Yeah. It's beyond crazy. And you know, I'm I, what maybe we should do an REM pod at some point. Cause they were my gateway drug. I mean, they yeah, were my favorite, absolutely. favorite band starting when I was like 11 years old. And, um, what's crazy about them and we said this the time we periscope with bill but we never said it on a podcast proper i don't think is it's insane that they became the biggest band of the world from the vantage point we're talking about from 1980 1981 it's equally insane from 2016 on the other end of their career because as i said then i still believe they i think they've left no footprint it's like they never happened like there's nothing on the radio there's nothing particularly indie that has even seems remotely influenced by them anymore it's like it never even happened yeah and God, were they good? And God, were they important to a lot of people? It's pretty interesting. Um, okay, so what you got? You got one more? Yeah, I have one more. Um, again, New York, uh, different genre of music. I think that uh, I think you could do an incredible show set in the rap industry from '02 to '05 because it was a time of incredible. Ooh. I hate to use this word, but like, if you want to talk about disruption. O2 is when Diplomats Volume One and Fifty Cent's first mixtape come out. Uh, Fifty, I think Fifty Cent is the Future came out in June of that year, and I can't remember when Diplomats Volume One came out. But so Cameron and Fifty come through, and all of a sudden, those are like the early days of the music industry. Like in some ways, you can go back and look at how that changes. You can draw a direct line between the mixtapes of the early two uh, thousands to the kind of like insane stuff that's happening on Tidal and Spotify and these alternate distribution models that people have set up and this idea that basically like the music industry is collapsing from within. Um, to say nothing of the fact that 50 Cent and Cameron and Jay-Z, who had sort of the year before that had put out Blueprint, um, Kanye was on the rise, you had Atlanta burgeoning, but really in New York from 02 to 05, and just the mixtape industry, this sort of like shadow industry within the music industry that kind of craters when there is the FBI, RIA investigation into DJ drama. Yeah. And we can get we could do a whole podcast about this, which is just basically about the fact that you had this incredibly creatively vibrant, commercially very successful, although nobody really knew how successful because it needed to be for promotional use only industry within the music industry that came to an abrupt halt. And, and and even though we kind of think of like what Future is putting out as mixtapes or whatever, or what you know we think of if you're reading this too late is a mixtape release. It was much different back then, and it was much more Wild West, and it was very cool. And you and I were both sort of like on the periphery of this stuff when we were in New York City and writing about music, and you know the scenes there were amazing. I mean, just like Jim Jones and Dame Dash and these characters who were like you know just parading the earth like like true brontosauruses. It was just an incredible time, and I, yeah. it would be really interesting to view that that through the lens of like an A and R person or a manager or a record label executive who was trying to keep his hand around, you know, this this the, the this very difficult slippery thing. And what's so, first of all, all in DVR series pass set, but 
what's great about that example and, and hopefully what, what we're saying in general is you know these are really 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 rich canvases for stories and characters and evocative moments um none of them probably would make it out of a pitch session because no one unless you were there or you're a fan of it you, you're not understanding it you know what i mean like you're you're basically pitching incredibly rich human stories but you don't have uh batman in the middle of yeah. it you know and in, in this case i guess batman being you know for the vinyl being led zeppelin or whoever like you don't have the you can say new york 1973 and mick jagger's attached and then you name the names of the bands you want to sort of you know approximate and you're like okay well that was a big thing i get that even if i'm a casual fan but when but if you're talking about like mixtape era early 2000s new york you'd have to you'd have to be handheld a little bit if you're an executive and i feel like a lot of executives don't want to be handheld in those pitches because they don't want to be put on the hell if you want continuity you could make richie finestra leor cohen (laughs) well that the Lear Cohen story would be great. I got one more for you that actually dovetails with what you're saying, which is I would really like to do 92, 93, 94, maybe up to 95 Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Because the beginning of like organized noise, right? Like the first Outcast record, Goody Mob, and everything that is to come. But what we're talking about in those years in particular is West Coast is completely dominant. New York had been dominant and is chirping back, right? So we have. We're, we're 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 turning the corner into the what turned into a total conflagration between Bad Boy and Death Row. That's hip hop, right? In terms of rock, that is the alternative era. So Nirvana is happening, yeah. Pearl Jam is happening. So everyone is paying attention to the other three corners of the country, and no one is paying attention to the South. And to basically to be, I mean, I th- this is also completely forgotten. But I remember like when we would buy issues of the Source magazine in like. I don't know, 1994, 1995, and then in the back where there would be classifieds and there would be full-page ads for these pen and pixel designed covers that No Limit was putting out or Cash Money was putting out, nascent companies. Yeah. At first, I was like, this is just a joke. Like, what are these things? Where, where, what alien planet are these images coming yeah, from? This isn't as serious you know? as Rough Riders. <laughs> no, believe me, I, now I realize how totally clownish I sound and ridiculous I was. And there were certainly smart, smart people who were paying attention to UGK and other things at that time. Yeah. I cannot pretend to have been one. Um, but w- just the stones that it took to be in a place that was sort of culturally ignored and denigrated and been like, no, we're going to do our own thing and it's going to be weird and it's going to work. And all the ways those different... Um, clicks and sounds must have crossed over you know because when the new orleans guys probably tried to went tried to go to atlanta um or vice versa like that is such a fertile time period it's fascinating especially considering how crazy rich the people in charge became you know some of them didn't keep it but master p and 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 birdman and the people who really stayed on top of it um you know there, there's a you look at the empire ratings and imagine what a what what a what a a drama that did not give half of its energy to creating soap bubbles could do. Here's the thing I would I would I would throw back at you is that what do you think would happen if you made a show? See, the thing is about vinyl is that it's very much in the madman tradition of there's already a modicum of success for the characters that we're watching. Like it's not about like will they get out yes. of the basement? And I almost wonder whether that's what's sort of that's a halt and catch fire problem where they kind of are in the garage still or and you know then you're watching them grow from something very small to something very medium instead of a fall from a great height and then a redemption it's almost a situation where i like wonder whether or not television shows at least the way the ones that people that people want to make it, they want to work from a higher level and they either have like a, a 
fall and a redemption rather than these people are nobodies and you might not even ever hear of them anyway but here is their story about how they were almost somebodies it's such an important point that you're making and i think we we talked a little bit around it last week for this uh, you know on the very same reasons which is it's easier to pitch the biggest stakes possible. You know, you want to see God's fall. You want to be operating. You want to be on the private jet with Bobby Axe Axelrod like that. You know, that that is incredibly sexy or exciting. It's certainly sexy and exciting when you're trying to pitch it to a network and the people who are actually paying for these things. Um, the problem is, I think you lose a lot of potential human stories in the process. And it's asking you're right, though. It's asking a lot of audiences to say, like, are you going to invest all this time in this person? And they might not turn into the greatest musician of all time, or they might not turn into the greatest gangster of all time. Um, the worst case, you end up like Boardwalk Empire. We were like, this guy you're paying attention to, he won't, but everyone around him will. But just don't look too closely at them. Right. Um, I, I just continue to believe. I, I understand why these things don't sell and why they don't get made and why they might struggle to attract an audience. But we're living, you know, we're, this is a utopian situation. We're just dreaming here. I would much rather take the bet on the, the, the human stories we haven't seen before. You know, it's what we were saying about Broad City, where it's like a story about having to pay for something Yeah, seems pretty mundane, but there's so much in it, um, you know, so much potential in that story to be unpacked in a way that I think is really uh, potentially exciting. Yeah, man. So we'll, we'll we'll get back later in the week. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about vinyl, like specifically we'll talk about girls uh, and any couple other shows. Better yeah, call Saul. I, I, you can't you, you can't leave me hanging on that. The the Alex and Alex. The uh, I'm still thinking about Alex Greenwald, man. God, I hope I hope they just got some room service today. I hope they're just enjoying themselves today. You know, it's been a long long awards campaign for them. No, for um, you know, uh, what's his name? Adam Driver and uh, and Jessa. I, uh, I'm not leaving you hanging. I, I, they're the, I, I, they're my favorite couple of all time. How am I leaving you hanging? I'm just saying, both of us are so charged up on this. Like, I cannot believe a show that we didn't leave for dead, but we left for less creatively interesting, right? They're like, oh, here's the most fun and creative couple, period, on TV right now. Super into it. And I have to think that they must have all fallen in love with it, too. I like the second episode of Girls the Season better than the first. I'm, Do we, I'm just, I'm, this I'm is my plea to Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor. Just, like, let them be happy. Like, I, because, like, the sobriety and, like, the hand of finding out and everything that can go wrong with them and they know everything that can go wrong. I just want them to love one another and stay at Coney Island forever. You just want to let these little fictional lovebirds fly, you know? <laughs> they don't even have to Why touch, as we found. We found that out. <laughs> They're fine, you know, whatever they're doing together, as long as they're doing it, you know, more or less simultaneously and on the same sort of um, horizontal plane, then they should be okay. All right, man. Well, we'll talk more Just about like girls, us, uh, vinyl, a couple other things. Better Call Saul. We've got to keep up on Sandpiper. We'll be back later in the week. Andy, thanks for uh, getting through another award season with me. Thanks, buddy. Great job, Baranski. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, remember, our sponsor, Viceland, the new TV channel from Vice, starts today, February 29th. And be, be sure to check out Fuck That's Delicious, the Action Bronson food show, which is on Thursdays at 10. Check your local listings to find the channel. It's really good.